listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Welcome, my friends, to a very special edition of Digital Noise, which is to say every edition of special Digital Noise is special because we're both special. At least that's what they told us in middle school when our parents put us into those special classes. We're not special. This is the deluxe edition, okay? We double dip in this house. Okay, that's fair. That's it. We're the bonus features of bonus go. feature shows, I guess. I don't know. What are you drinking there, Aaron? I am drinking a beef eater gin and some slightly sweetened strawberry seltzer water, which is maybe the most dangerous drink I've ever had because I can't taste the alcohol and there's a lot there. Yeah, that's how they get the, all those sorority girls. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, we're not here to review alcohol drinks, although that show might come at some point in the future. I'm I'm willing to. I'm down with that, you know? Yeah, no, me too. I mean, like, especially we do like a roving, like, we're trying out this. (laughs) Hey, it's free, right, buddy? Yeah. Because we're reviewing it. It's free. There you go. It's free. These these $27 drinks, they're free? (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) We'll take your most expensive scotch. It's free, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like me at South by Southwest. Hey, they stipulated a two-drink minimum. They didn't say which drinks. Exactly. We're here to review Blu-rays and occasionally DVDs, not as often these days, and occasionally 4Ks, more and more often. And Aaron and I have a lot to talk about this week. We're going to get started with a 4K of a film that really flew in under the radar this year for... uh, you know, for a year that was filled of studios like holding back their big stuff, their big releases, their big theatrical type movies, it was one of the few that like slipped in that people were like didn't have on their radar and went, wow, that was much better than I would have expected and kind of gave, scratched that itch of like, oh, fun, summer, cool movies. And that is Love and Monsters. This hit a uh, release before I even knew it existed. Yeah. Like I was debating whether or not this was originally supposed to be a theatrical film, if it was a straight to DVD or not, or like really what it was. It doesn't matter because it it's legitimately a lot of fun. Um, and so it, it's basically kind of a low key YA redo of a boy and his dog. Um <laughs> I would have gone with a zombie land like different take. Uh, no, no, okay. no. This is the warm bodies version of a boy and his dog, because like <laughs> it, it takes a traditionally uh, post apocalyptic, gruesome, nasty, depressing topic, kind of gives it a little bit of a romance twist, and somehow it works, even though a twee romance monster movie shouldn't. But basically. The plot, such as it is, it it takes place after essentially the destruction of Earth. There was an asteroid headed. We tried to blow it up. Shit went bad. And all the bugs and the uh, lizards. All all animal and bug life on Earth got mutated and huge. All all the nice animals died and all the scary animals got big. Um, And so it fast forwards seven years later where uh, the main character, Dole Joe, Joel Dawson, who's played by (laughs) Dylan O'Brien. And it's nice to see him back working again after his injury, but he gets separate. And and also, can I point out one of the best things about the mixed Maze Runner films, which are generally not as bad as people think they are like they're okay. Sometimes they're really good, but he was the lead guy and he was great. in them. yes, he was. And and I think it was the third Maze Runner that where he hurt himself actually. Um, But uh, essentially, 
Uh, he gets separated from his girlfriend and it jumps forward seven years later into it. And he is the sole single guy in fuck palace central. He's basically in a bunker with like four different couples who are just having sex around the clock and, he, and occasionally dying and occasionally dying. And he <laughs> is dealing with PTSD from, you know, the monsters that came and ate everyone he ever knew. Uh, and also lonely because he realized for the first time in those seven years, his girlfriend is still alive. And so he decides very early on, you know what? I don't care that everyone thinks I'm a coward. I don't care that I'm probably going to die. I am going to take the seven to eight day journey on foot from my colony to her colony and tell my girlfriend that I still love her. And yeah. That's kind of the setup of the movie. It's him going on this journey and running into colorful characters, running into cool monsters that have great design work, uh, oh, yeah. and having just a fun adventure with the dog. Uh, and, of course, like when we get into the third act, I'm not going to go too much into it, but we get some twists and turns. Things aren't as what they seem. And, and one thing that I will comment on that I would like that this movie did Despite the fact that it sets up a like nice guy fantasy movie, which we've seen a thousand times before, every time they approach that moment and they give the main character a chance to be kind of a dick about it, instead he takes a breath and is like, no, no, you're right, I'm wrong, that makes sense. And yeah. like, it, this is a good movie, this is just a good fun movie. Yeah, they set it up to be that whole, like, why don't girls, like, respond good to nice guys? And they end up with, like, something that's a lot more complicated than that and a lot more interesting and a more realistic character, a more likable character with your lead. Like, and when you transpose all the monsters and the apocalypse out of it with the idea of, like, she was the one and I'll do anything to chase her down and make sure we're together forever and, like, see what the movie does with that. It's like, oh, well, that was interesting. Yeah. It's But, you know... Oh. Outside of that, as you said, just tremendous monster design, really funny stuff that goes on all throughout it. Um, and Michael Rooker is like a wandering monster hunter with his little like ward, a young girl. Damn you. I was going to talk about so him. great. <laughs> I'm like, why aren't they in this whole movie? They should have just said, you know what? You're now part of our party. I'm putting you in the left hand side of our yeah. screen here. Uh, GN, and we're going to you're going to be there for the whole rest of the movie. Yeah, strangely enough, the thing that I took away from this movie that like I giggled at and had the biggest like impact was not both. They have a rule where because it's the post apocalypse and everything's trying to kill you, you can either get a nap or you can get a hot meal. You don't get both. Uh, yeah. It's like that. That has now woven its way into my uh, fantasy end of the world preparation like path. It's just like, okay, okay, don't forget, not both. Agreed. This movie is adorable. It's clever. It's really pretty. Uh, and I desperately wanted more when it was over. And I'm not going, oh, well, this is like a groundbreaking film. I fully acknowledge like this is owes a lot to Zombieland. There's no question like the basic feel of it outside of the whole like meta-ness of like freeze the thing and have like like meta shit on the uh, on ha happening on the screen and uh you know above the board narration it doesn't have that but i still felt like there's no question i i like it, it's related to that but in some ways i felt like i liked it a little bit more than those movies because Agreed. it just has a sweetness to it a charm to it that i'm like i'd more than the Zombieland films, I'd watch this with kids. See, I, I lean back towards warm bodies because it, it's that pseudo-romance, kind of twee, humorous, winking at the camera feel that shouldn't work. But because they're earnest about it and they stick the humor, it manages to pull you in and entertain throughout. And so there's some decent bonus stuff here as well. There's almost 12 minutes of deleted scenes that I watched all of and went, yeah, all of these were worth watching. None of them are essential or huge pieces missing, but they're cute little extra pieces. There's bottom of the food chain, the cast of Love and Monsters for almost eight minutes, which takes a look at, you know, it's EPK-ish type thing, which looks at the actors. And then there's, it's a monster's world creating a post-apocalyptic landscape for about seven minutes, which looks into the Australian shooting locations with those shots, the cinematography, the production design, the creation of the monsters and more. Yeah. I think this is a solid release, both as just a movie to watch and as actually for bonus features wise, one to own. Yeah. Hollywood or, 
or I wish the studios out there would make more movies like this. I don't want a sequel. I want other stuff like this. Well, I do actually want a sequel. I want more of this. I want to see more of this world. Fair I enough. like the world they created. I do. <laughs> well, let's move into one that, like, Love and Monsters was a big studio release. What wasn't a big studio release was the Korean film Beasts Clawing at Straws. And I remember when this came out, was just sent to me under the table on Blu-ray. I went like, well, what is this? And was this exploitation? Yes. Which okay. I, I had to comment on that because this is... The first time I have watched an art exploitation release, which I actually appreciate unabashedly without reservations. Okay, so there's there's a few that I like a lot. There's a few. There's one or two that I've loved. Like Snowflake is one of the big ones for me, where I'm like, oh god, everybody sees Snowflake. It's so good. Uh, but this is yeah, one of the like. Usually with them, I, I would say like six times out of ten, you're going to get one. You're like, what are you doing? Uh, our exploitation <laughs> will forever be the the production company that put out my most hated digital noise title of all time. So, Oh, uh, re- uh, Red Christmas? Red Christmas. <laughs> and no, I'm never going to forget. Until I see something worse, that that's that I'm never going to forget it. It's there. But it goes a long way towards forgiving them for Beast Kalong at Straws for me because this Korean film, written and directed by Kim Jong Hoon as his debut feature film, is a crazy sort of Korean Tarantino-esque type film that defies expectations, leaves you wondering who to trust and who not to trust. A bunch of really fascinating characters in this interwoven, nonlinear crime story that admittedly, at worst... You can't watch this film with your phone on at all. No. It takes a lot of paying attention to because it's a little bit of a complex storyline in the way it's all constructed, but pays off in such a huge way. Divided into six chapters, at the end of this, I was like, God damn, this is going to go into my top list of like best Korean films the last couple of years. It's also an unabashedly gorgeous movie. Um it feels like it was shot by the South Korean equivalent of Roger Deakins. Like mm-hmm. almost every single scene in this movie is lit by the glow, the neon glow of the lights outside. And so they keep doing this thing where they, they frame all the characters and the internal locations with giant windows behind them or around them. And you can always see the lights playing off of them. It's just, it's one of the first times I've seen a South Korean movie really nail that feel of the city is a character uh, that you get sometimes in like American crime films that take place in New York. Like I, I adored the feel of this. In fact, I, I'm just going to go out and say this. I, I really want to see the South Korean filmmaker do other stuff. I, I don't know why, yeah. but I found myself going like, I really want this guy to make of all things, the rogue squadron movie, just because <laughs> I would love to see the way he shoots space scenes with his cinematographer. I think that would be fun. But this, but this is a powerful but, but debut. This actual movie, uh, it, it it has one of the more apt titles. It basically is a disjointed movie following several disparate storylines um, as characters who were either unabashedly bad or who like to think that they're good people break bad in order to get a Louis Vuitton bag full of thousands and thousands of dollars or... I should know the South Korean currency. I don't off the top of my head. I don't either. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's It follows a character who's Jung Man is, his prim- is the primary character from the beginning who's like got a shitty job working at a sauna. His boss hates him. No one seems to particularly like him there. He, ha- he has to work there to care for a sick mom. And he finds a huge bag of money left in a sauna. All right. So then it goes, let's go back. <laughs> and it does sort of trace in and out. Well, where the hell did this bag come from that follows a customs official who's in debt to a criminal who wants to run a scam on someone who's trying to run the run out of the country? Uh, it follows a escort who has an abusive husband who sees a way out when one of their clients offers to murder them in exchange for a cut of the life insurance policy. Uh, and all these things stream in and out and you find yourself fascinated and like i said slightly confused until you're not yeah about how all these things are going to tie together because there was a period halfway through i'm like 
I feel like I'm watching three totally different movies and I'm not sure what they have to do with each other. Okay. And then you do. I'm glad you called that out because I had the same issue. Um, when we get towards like the end of the first act, beginning of the second act, there's a period where there's so much going on that it just it, it slows down and doesn't hold as much interest. But then one of the storylines kind of reaches its end with a relatively big twist. And from that point on, it's like, no, no, this is an amazing movie. We're, we're in. We're in. I, I feel like this is a movie that is going to really benefit from rewatching. Agreed. Certainly. Like, I, not that I didn't enjoy it the first time, because I really did. It just is one of those films that you have to go, you have to be confident enough that it's going to all pay off and this is worth your time. Because there'll be points you're like, I don't even know what's going on. But you will, yeah. if you're paying attention. And by the end, you're like, God damn, that was kind of brilliant. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing it again with knowing ahead of time what the plot is, what how these inter, interplay, and I feel like I'm missing a lot having seen it the first time through without already knowing how they were interconnected. Agreed. Very much so. Uh, there's not a lot extra here, unfortunately. Uh, there's just trailers, but I will say this is... You know, it's weird that Artsploitation got a hold of, like, a Korean film. This hasn't really been the way they've oh. pointed themselves in the past. A lot of other distribution companies have, and this had a really good... Uh, festival series of releases here it was postponed because of covid i think that was the main thing but it's at 100 percent on rotten well, tomatoes because it, it's really good it also has a polish that art exploitation doesn't usually have because they go for more independent movies their movies always have a little bit more of a homemade quality to it uh like mm -hmm. i i hope this is indicative of a new direction they're moving i want to see more titles like this in their collection yeah, uh, I 100% I agree. But we're going to move on to our next title, which is a documentary called White Riot. Now, before you go, oh, God, is this a political film? Okay, it is, but that's not its... It's a music film, right? Well, There's a bunch of stuff I don't really completely know or didn't know bef uh, about the British punk music scene. Like, there's a lot of details of, like, well, you had to be there type stuff. And what Right Riot does is goes into the idea of the fact that there was a lot of racism happening in England publicly. People like, which I didn't even know before I saw this, Eric Clapton coming out and being yeah. like saying things like stop Britain from becoming a black colony that he said live on stage. Keep Britain white. I mean, oh, my God. Uh, and this. uh politician called Enoch Powell, who was just like, you know, the Mitch McConnell of England or what have you, like a very anti-immigration, really, really racist guy who led to the, to some ways there was a, a aftershock of the punk scene having a political party called the National Front uh, that ended up with the skinheads, the sort of the birth of the racist skinheads. Uh, by the way, Rod Stewart, also a piece of shit, a racist piece well, of shit. Didn't know that before I saw this. One thing is this movie's kind of a music documentary, but not really. It's kind mm. of a documentary about British racism, but not really. Like, ultimately yeah. what it is, is it's about a, a zine, a, a magazine that was put out in the British zine. zine, thank you. Zine. Sorry, I'm I'm uncool. I, I it's all that. right. I know. Um, I love you for your uncoolness. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was put out focusing on the British punk culture with an explicit point and goal of fighting against the National Front Party. And so, like, it touches punk music, it touches racism, it touches British politics, but really it's about this zine that was created, that targeted um uh, this political movement reprinted news stories and put out uh really hard-hitting um investigative pieces on who was racist and who was not and how this political movement was moving across britain and, and like and paired up with the equivalent of the and i'm probably getting this wrong but uh what seemed like the the british black panther movement uh, a bunch of african british people who were trying to like no no we are fighting the political side of things uh and so that they could target the more political activist side while the the zine could actually go in and focus on the music and the culture as well and so like it's it's about that zine's journey 
but because it touches on so much, you get a lot of everything. And I was actually pinging you randomly while watching this documentary going like, wait, wait, wait. So is this what punk culture was like? I had no idea. Well, it was what part of it was like, certainly. Uh, would this leads up to a 1978 concert, as you said, the big Rock Against Racism, Racism concert, which was held in a part of England that was not considered to be, like, progressive, certainly. And that was very much on purpose with getting a big bunch of big bands, including The Clash, who were, like, their biggest band, right? And the question about, like, The Clash had one of their most famous songs because White Riot that their problem with like, okay, you guys, is anyone listening to our lyrics? Because this is not a national front song. This is an anti-racism song, you know, as still happens even today. I mean, certainly in 1978, similar things were happening in the punk movement in America and other countries that were anti-racist as well, raging against the sort of thing that unintentionally got inspired by Sid Vicious and Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees wearing uh, a, a swastika bands that were literally there just there for outrage, but they hadn't, it was just naivete that they had no idea that some people would take them that seriously. And it's, it's a fascinating look into this very complex period of time in music and a very motivated group of people who were like, fuck this, who won who straight up won, who came in with the power of the youth and the power of like, just people were like, no, absolutely not. No Nazis in the ice cream uh, who came in and were like, no, we absolutely will not accept this. And, and really just made a huge difference. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's a great documentary out of the two that we have. I think it was the one that I drifted to more. And even, even not really being a particular fan of the punk genre, uh, I was able to get a lot out of it. Granted, we're going through a lot of the similar things right now today in America. So it was a little relevant yeah. for me. You know, like, like I think I watched this within a day of the insurrection attempt on the Capitol. And it was like, OK, I get this. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's how it got started. I see. Well, we're going to move on to our next film, which is the Criterion release of Amores Paros. I'm not saying that with the proper enunciation i'm well aware but that has never been my strong point as anyone who's been watching the show for a long time knows and i apologize for that by alejandro gonzalez inarito who is a uh, spanish director who went on from this film his big you know debut literally debut in 2000 to doing other films that were really widely loved 21 grams babble uh, beautiful Birdman, The Revenant. I mean, he's no question whether or not you like those films, an important and interesting director. And Amores Paris is one of those films that I saw when it first came out. And I think I was, I remember really liking it, but it was one of those films that kind of left me. I was like, I can't remember if I even saw it or not when I got this criterion, <laughs> did I see this? But it's noted as the first installment of his trilogy of death, <laughs> which was 21 grams and Babel, which are the two, three films that do this, which is sort of a multiple narratives that all come together uh, in a way that like in 2000 was definitely reminiscent of Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. People were comparing it to it actively there. The title is funny enough, a Spanish pun. Paris literally means dogs, but it also can be used to refer to misery. So it also, it roughly means bad love, but it also could be translated as saying, having dog connotations. And there is a lot of dog stuff going on in this yeah, movie. Fair warning before going into this movie. If you have any kind of issues watching animals get hurt on film, the animals themselves were not hurt. We promise they you. They were not. The filmmakers promise yeah. you. But nevertheless, there's a lot of dog death in this movie. Yeah. And, and it looks real. But, I mean, they, like, knew starting this film that this was going to be examined. So there's lots of footage they shot outside of the actual filmmaking to be clear. Nothing with, no one was hurt. We had people on, on board here, ASPCA people watching this. No dogs were hurt, uh, but it's startling to watch because it feels like they were, but I did do the challenge where if you frame by frame it and pause it, there's lots of dog fighting scenes and you can see that they've got plastic, like clear plastic uh, muzzles on. It's just shot in a way you can't tell if you're watching it 
you know, at the speed it is intended to be seen. You, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I get what you're talking about with this movie leaving you. And, like, uh, the director, I he's one of those people that I've respected. But out of all of his movies, the only one I've seen that really ever hit me was Birdman. I love Birdman. And while, Birdman's great. While I haven't seen Revenant, like, the rest of them were like, okay. They were okay. I get what you're going for. It's not necessarily my cup of tea. And I think that's the problem I ran into with this one. Um, it might just be that it's been 21 years, roughly, or almost 21 years since this movie came out. And so I've seen we've seen lots of other titles do this kind of thing. And I, I ended up never really getting into the rhythm or feeling like everything tied together in a way that I wanted it to. And, mm. and a lot of the stories, while I was like, okay – those are heartbreaking and emotional stories. They're well acted. I also never really ended up connecting with many of the characters. Like, like, well, part of that, part of that might just be that. Well, what is our point of connection yeah. to these characters? Uh, you know, I mean, this is a very Spanish film. Uh, there's nobody in here that I really am like. Oh, I've been through that. <laughs> like, no, I don't have that connection. But I will say on rewatching it, I admired it deeply, the way it's constructed, the way the stories interact with each other and come together, which is like Gail Garcia Bernal, which is this is one of his first movies. It it had to have been around when he was doing Itu Mamba Tavian, too. He looks the exact same. Uh, he's in love with his brother's wife, played by Vanessa Baruch. Uh, His brother is a real piece of shit. And he's trying to cons- uh, to say, why don't you come away with me? I love you. Uh, he's got a dog and he is like, oh, well, maybe I'll get the money to get this new life with her, with this dog who who's actually kind of a badass to like win at these fights. And then you've got a magazine publisher, Daniel, played by Alvaro Guerrero, who has left his family to live with his lover, Goya Toledo, who's a Spanish supermodel. Uh, she, the day they are moving in together, her leg is really badly broken in the, in a car accident. She can't keep being a model. They, uh, her dog disappears through a broken floorboard in their new apartment, which gets into a weird sort of like, is this going to get into a horror well, thing? But that story just gets weirder and yeah. more disturbing. Uh, and that's the one I'm like, this has nothing to do with anything else in this story. Like you could have cut this out of this film entirely. Although I think it's good, a good story. It has nothing really to do it with anything else. But it also like the, the girlfriend who he leaves his family for is strangely uh-huh. the character I ended up most connected to. Like her, the two wives or the girlfriend and the wife in this movie or the two, I was like, okay, I'm with you guys and I'm interested in your journeys. Yeah. Uh, and then Emilio Echevarra, who is, uh, you'll know from E2 Mamba Tambien, uh, amongst many other films, he was in Die Another Day and The Alamo and multiple other things. He's the guy I think when I first saw this, I recognized the most. He plays a, a vagrant who turns out to be a professional vagrant hitman. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. Because of course he is. And that story kind of ties the more into the first story. But, you know, I, I did overall think that this was really, really enjoyable to watch. It's a little long. Yeah, you could lose half an hour in this movie without too much of an issue, I think. It's 153 minutes. Yeah. That's a long time for any movie that's not just startling in every frame. And there are people who argue this film is startling in every frame, but I still think this is a movie that you're like, yeah, you're going to want to see it. So it, it's, it's long. It's shot handheld, which is, it makes it very visceral. The color balance is very cold and it, a lot of the color has been drained from it. So it has a very particular aesthetic, but like if, if this is your jam, if you really dig Mexican cinema or you have that, cultural context so you can feel that connection to the stories this is a classic it's a powerful film i would definitely recommend it for anyone who is into those kinds of movies well the criterion edition comes with an illustrated booklet with essays by uh critic fernanda solizano and author juan villero as well as technical credits there's a vintage trailer there's a extra feature a new pro a new program made for this with inarito and powell oh boy 
Pawlikowski, who did one of my favorite foreign language films of the past several years, Cold War, who discussed the making of this film, uh, which is I thought was fascinating to watch. There's a new program, Reunion, which gets together several of the actors and the director to get back and recall their work on here. There is Pro Logo, which has footage from the rehearsals here. Uh, Peros Ameros Accidentes, which is a new program, which is research and raw footage from the production of this. Uh, Gustavo Santiolala, new video interview with the composer uh, of the music here. There's three music videos, two of them directed by Inaritu himself. There's a new video essay written and directed uh, and narrated by critic Paul Julian Smith in English. There's three deleted scenes. Overall, this is a solid Criterion release of a film that if you missed along the way, you know, way. I mean, I don't want to undersell it. This is way worth your time to check yeah. out. But yes, you're right, Aaron. The dogfighting scenes are upsetting. And if that's something that you're sensitive to at all, dogs getting hurt, you're oh, not going to want to watch this. Every movie. single. So there are three stories. All three stories have dog death and violence as a major component and theme of the story. So yeah. brace yourselves. Well, Blue Underground continues their tradition of putting out 4K releases of older, cult, obscure to some, but not obscure to others, of releases. And now they're going on from horror, which is largely what we've covered from them before, to action, uh, vigilante films with the film Vigilante, Vigilante a 1982 film. If you saw it on video in the 80s, it might have been called Street Gang, but it was directed by the William Lustig, who I always say is, <laughs> uh, to me, best known as being the guy who did Maniac and Maniac Cop yeah. and Maniac Cop 2. Any, but, any director whose name has the word lust in it, who makes exploitation <laughs> cinema, is worth watching. <laughs> but this is stars this stars Robert Forrester and Fred Williamson. It's a beautiful transfer. It just looks gorgeous. And if you like the sort of like the people from the street rise up because they're sick of the corrupt police and they're sick of like the system working against them and they're going to get revenge the only way they have available to them. I mean, this is one of those movies. I, I was impressed with the fact that it manages to both be a ultra right wing conservative fantasy about like cleansing the streets of the gangs and killing everyone as well as a liberal fantasy about the minorities rising up and like fighting for justice on their own. Like it, it manages to somehow be propaganda for both groups at the same time. Uh, and like, honestly, like there was a lot that I liked about this movie. I dig this kind of weird eighties and seventies obscure cinema. Um, I, I think that this one was mostly really enjoyable. I ended up having an issue with the structure of it, though, because it feels like they had two different movies and they weren't quite sure which one they wanted to make. And so they made both. And so there's mm -hmm. one movie with Robert Forrester basically being the Punisher, um, where his family is killed by vigil by random gangs for no good reason. Um, yeah. And then he goes to jail and spends a third of the movie off camera in jail, where the movie then switches to Fred Williamson doing his vigilante game, fighting back for the streets of justice. And then after it sticks with that for like a good 30 minutes, it then switches back to Robert Forrester and his uh, rampage of revenge. Both yeah, it's, uh, there's something disturbing yeah. about a seventies film. That's like, uh, or 80s film that's like, hey, you know, we're fighting back, but oh, thank God a white guy yeah. is here to lead us now. <laughs> but both stories are legitimately good, but together, like that shift between the two, eh, I didn't get it. I really wish they had found a way to have Robert Forrester involved throughout, and so his story actually felt like the main story. Or just they picked one, but eh, you know what? This is like a kind of fun, kind of shitty, kind of great 80s exploitation cinema. It's it's not going to be an Academy Award winner. Like it's it's going to well, have issues. No, of course it's not going to be. Yeah, no, it's it's a little uh, revenge exploitation film. Um, if you like these type of films, I think this is one I'm, wow, I'm so glad I saw this. Yeah. I, I actually, this was off my radar entirely. I, I'm sure I read about it in the past, but just never really followed up on it. But I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I got a chance to see this in a really good copy of it. I mean, I love Fred Williamson and Robert Forrester both. And I, I found this actually, you know, despite a certain amount of inescapable 
inappropriateness from a film in this time that was trying to be like down to the streets and what have you, you know, certain amount of misogyny and racism that's going to come inherent in those things. It's very, very entertaining and well shot. I loved seeing Woody Strode, famous, uh, one of the first black American players in the National Football League post-war. He was a big legend in there and then went on to actually get a Golden Globe Award for Best sub- nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actor for being in Spartacus in 1960. But he's one of those actors who was just in a bunch of stuff over the years and sort of a like a smaller character a lot of the time. And it was so nice to see him as sort of the guy in jail who takes Robert Forrester under his arms like, hey, Mama. it's all right, man. I won't, I won't let you get raped. Yeah, I th- <laughs> thank you. I was going to call that out. If you want to know what kind of movie this is, uh, when the plot describes that character, he's like, Eddie befriends an inmate named Rake, played by Woody Strode, who saves him from being gang raped. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It is accurate. I, I do think, if you you know who you are. If you like this type of movie, this might be one that you like escaped Dude. your notice, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And it's a great transfer from Blue Underground, who's been doing a tremendous job lately, sort of leading the pack you know, they were one of those, they started suddenly putting out a bunch of 4K releases of like these smaller films, but cult films. Hey. And I, I noticed other companies like Arrow and Shout Factory going, wait, what? Are we doing that now? And Rush, yeah. Blue, shit, we got to do that now. I, I've uh, always respected Blue Underground. They're the ones who turned me on to Dario Argento. Uh, they released good transfers of good stuff. Yeah. There's a bonus features is Blue Collar Death Wish, a new program with uh, Bill Lustig, writer Richard Viter, producer Randy uh, Jorgensen, and more who discuss the production of it, uh, the problems with like looking back on it based on the error it received and the reception it had, and lots of funny stories for 25 minutes. There's Urban Western, a new video pr- program with the composer Jay Chataway. There's uh, two, I'm sorry, three different commentary tracks on here. Lots of trailers, TV spots, promotional reels, galleries, and then there's even more bonus stuff uh, hidden away in the you know shoved into it there's a reversible cover with vintage postage postage art and uh post art and then a 20 page illustrated booklet featuring an essay doing justice to vigilante and technical credit so this is a solid fucking release for people who this is their thing it is disturbing to the degree that i love when these um archival re-releases of old grindhouse movies put the reversible poster from like the original vhs release in it it always makes me happy. That's always the cover I pick. So we're going to move into a documentary now of the great Audrey Hepburn, just called Audrey, more than an icon. Now, anybody that knows me, has listened to me for enough years, knows, oh, I love Audrey Hepburn. I, I thought she was tremendous. She was a person who, like, after just literally kind of getting bored with acting and moving out of it, like, going, okay, I've had enough. Like, I'll show up every once in a while, but was so wealthy from doing it and already had other connections that she went on and became this huge person for charity. She was just a good person, right? A good human being. Unfortunately, that doesn't always lead to the most interesting of documentaries. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, let's see. You skip over the in t- about 10 minutes of this documentary, the portion of her life where she was literally fighting undercover the Nazis <laughs> and just move on to her film career. I'm like, can we get back to the fighting the Nazis part? Well, the thing is, is this really doesn't feel like a true blue documentary. It is a and, and Chris taught me this word. It, I was wondering if you were going to do Fuck this. yeah, yeah. It, it's a hagiography. Uh, basically, it's not a biography. It's a canonization of a saint. And, and that's mm-hmm. the way this is played up. It, it's not learn anything new about Audrey Hepburn you haven't heard before. It's check out Audrey Hepburn. Wasn't she an angel for an yeah. hour and 20 minutes? And like, yeah. like there's a lot of cool stuff. So I, I don't have the connection with Audrey Hepburn. I've... As much as I, I know the movies she's been in, I've never actually seen one of her films, um, okay. including Breakfast at Tiffany's. Don't 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 hate me. I'm sorry. There's a I bunch know. of stuff we're saying. I know. There, I know. Right? Uh, not on purpose. It just hasn't happened. Um, but yeah, Roman Holiday, Sabrina. If, if, um, oh, um, I lied. I've seen Sabrina. Mus- I've seen one. What's the musical? What's the big musical? Uh, My Fair Lady. But so if you're interested in learning really about who she was beyond the film 
uh, her past fighting Nazis or her Nazi father. Uh, like that's touched on, but like Chris said, it's not really part of the movie. But if no. you think that Audrey Hepburn is just the keenest lady who ever existed, and just hearing her story makes your heart feel warm and fuzzy, then you want to check this out. Um, yeah. But but if if you don't feel warm and fuzzy at the mention of her name, yeah, yeah I I mean there are better sources to get a sort of the I mean literally just any review of Audrey uh, Wikipedia. It's like, oh, well, these are the Audrey Hepburn movies I need to see. This is kind of like if you're someone who's just like, no, I love Audrey Hepburn. I just want that mantelpiece. Wasn't she a saint? The hagiography. I don't even know if we're saying that right, but that's someone phonetically. Someone will tell us. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's what this is. It's fine, but there's nothing really interesting here. Like, Like I said, the most interesting part of her life, and it might be for lack of information because she was a very private person. But they kind of just get past rather quickly and get into the part of her life was just like, and then she was in a bunch of movies and people were like, wow, she's great. And people were like, wow, she's iconic. And wow, she's beautiful. And then she's like, wow, I think I'd rather do something else. And then she fed people. (laughs) And it was just like, yeah. Yeah. Which which I I, I am not belittling the accomplishment she did. That's just kind of the way the documentary plays it. (laughs) No, she's just one of those people you're like, oh, yeah, she was great. And unfortunately, <laughs> she didn't have the world's most interesting story for lack of information. I don't know what to tell you. She did not. Uh, someone on our site was recommending we do a um, review of a Pat Morita biography film that was coming out. I'm like, I feel like this is going to be the same thing. <laughs> like, uh, what is there? And Pat Morita, he was in the karate. You loved him in the karate kid. I don't know. Maybe he had, maybe I missed something and he had like this super fascinating background, but I feel like there would have been a documentary by now if that had been the case. I don't know. I, I, I found that a lot of the times when you have single focus, one person documentaries that they tend to drift a little more towards this direction. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I tend to assume they're all like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't expecting a, uh, you know, a tell-all, like, ooh, here's the juicy bits type of thing. I wasn't wanting no. that even. But, like, this, this just isn't terribly interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's move on to our next film. It was a narrative film called Honest Thief. We reviewed this on the site. We weren't on the review for this, which is why we're doing it here. This is a 2020 action thriller film with Liam Neeson. And right there, you know most of what you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I find the actual story to this kind of an interesting one. Like, uh-huh. like out of the generic Liam Neeson action pieces, this is the one that I think is the most unique. And so he is he plays Tom Dolan, who is a master thief. Uh his nickname is the In and Out Bandit, which <laughs> which I'd be like, can you pick another name, please? <laughs> That's really oh, that way. Uh, talk about there's porn of everything. I, I think he actually even says that. Like, I don't like this name. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, but... can I go by like the American L- Lupin? Or... <laughs> <laughs> so so he, he robs a lot of banks. He has a notoriety over years, too. Um, yeah. And then he runs into Annie Wilkes. Oop. I hit my mic. Um, He runs into a woman who he falls desperately in love with her. He has a change of personality, a change of priorities, buys a house. He's going to ask her to marry him and decides, you know what? Look, at some point, I'm going to have to tell her that I'm a thief. Like, Also, I'm sorry. Can I interrupt you? You said Annie Wilkes. Isn't that the main character from Misery? Yes, it's Annie Wilkins. It's Annie Wilkins. (laughs) I just want to be clear, because that would be a very different (laughs) film. She's played by Kate Walsh, who does a pretty good job. Uh, But so he decides, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call the FBI. I'm going to turn myself in. I'm going to give him all the money back because of reasons that I'm not going to get into. He kept it all. Um, and then I'm probably going to do some jail time and then be married to Annie. It'll be fun. Um, unfortunately, due to a law enforcement incompetence and not really giving a shit, 
And then when the law enforcement actually does care, sending, um, God, is Jai Courtney. Jai uh, Courtney, living block yeah, of wood. Jai he Cor- is the dryad of actors. Who has been seriously. good in one movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, what was it, the DC film? Yeah, Suicide Squad, which, Suicide Squad, which was not a good movie. He was no. great in a bad movie. He's great <laughs> in a bad movie. But, yes. um, and then his partner, Anthony Ram- Ram- uh, Ramos, who's like, I don't know if I want to go along with yep. this. And so, who was from Hamilton, who deserves better for, than this bullshit. So the two of them decide, <laughs> screw it. We're going to kill um, Liam Neeson. We're going to take the money and we're going to say that it was all fake. Uh, well, Liam Neeson, of course, is kind of a badass. And so they get into a fight. People die. He goes on the run and it kind of becomes a light PG-13 revenge film where he's striking back at the FBI agents trying to clear his name. And like, look, this this is... I'm going to damn this movie with faint praise and tell you why this is exactly the kind of movie that I'm happy exists. So it's okay. There's not a lot that's special in this movie. The acting is okay. The story is okay. Um, It's a low to mid budget movie. It's a Liam Neeson actioner. It's one of the better ones for benefit of the fact that it is a unique story, but it's still kind of a generic low budget action movie. Yeah. No, there's a lot of these and I've seen all of them. The Liam Neeson, like, you know, mid to low budget action, red box, direct to red box actioners. I mean, it's no taken. No question. But, like, it's fine, you know? Like, a, some of these you watch, and you're like, Jesus Christ, this is fucking incompetent. There's so much badness. And here I'm like, it does what it needs to do. There's nothing really great here. Uh, there's nothing really terrible here. I mean, Jai Courtney's ridiculous as the corrupt cop. Just fucking ridiculous. There's a- like, he's trying to play it over the top, and you're like, this doesn't fit, really. Like, no. a cop who had, like, fell sideways into corruption would have been so much more interesting here and there was plenty of room for that and he's like a guy like fuck it i don't care i you know and then jeffrey donovan who is like really of course well loved from burn notice explains like the good cop who has nothing really to do no he he, <laughs> he doesn't really do anything until the last act and even then he's just there to be kind of somebody going through a divorce um, yeah. So it, here's the what I like about this movie, though. I think this is the kind of movie that the shift to a streaming priority entertainment industry is going to actually be great for. Because I really miss the mid-grade action film that used to come out straight to DVD or would come out in theaters, make just enough money to make a profit, and just kind of like be fine with it. And yeah. since the shift to blockbuster cinema, where we're dealing with like, you know, 150, 200 million and up budgets, we've lost this. And I'm, well, it's coming I'm back. really happy. Like they've been like two or three that have come out on Netflix in the last three months alone. So I, I'm really excited to start seeing this genre hit again because this movie, it's okay. But like, I would definitely recommend it for anyone who you have an hour and a half to kill and it's on. Why not? You're yeah. not going to sure. have a bad time. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily buy it. But no, it's not. It's not a run to it no, film. But it's a, it's a throw it on. I'm sorry. You know, if you like these type of films, this is not a terrible one, and, and it's fine. It's fine. But, I know faint praise, damning it, but like it, it is. It's fine. I I watched it and I was like, I don't feel like I wasted my time watching it. I had a good enough time. There's a but cool car chase. I'll forget. Like five years from now, I'll be like. Did I see that? <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I don't care. I'm so fucking happy this movie exists. I want there to be more movies like this. Let's make a lot of low to mid-budget action movies, people. Come on. You know, what I like about this isn't that that door is open again in and of itself. What I like is because of all these streaming services, like, oh, people want to see this sort of stuff. It opens the ground for people going, well, fuck, we can actually experiment a little more with the format here. We can do stuff with this format with actors like Liam Neeson, known for this sort of thing, and do some stuff that takes you off guard and tries new things, Uh which admittedly is happening more in foreign countries than it is happening here right now. But I'm hoping that we sort of, this is the Netflix goes, oh, look at the numbers on these foreign language things that we've been putting out lately. They've been doing really well. Maybe we should take a lesson from what they're doing and ask Liam Neeson to maybe throw an interesting <laughs> twist in. I don't know. 
Because there's nothing in this movie that you don't know is going to happen in the first half hour. Agreed. You're like, oh, I, I know everything yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah, uh, there was one character death that kind of surprised me, uh, but that was about it. Well, let's go on to our DC Animated Universe release, Batman Soul of the Dragon, now out on Blu-ray and 4K, or 4K and Blu-ray, if that is your thing. This, of course, many, many, many Batman, D uh, or, I'm sorry, DC Universe animated original films already. It's the 40th, in fact. Once again, directed by Sam Liu, who's like really been taking charge of this entire department yeah, pretty much he, right he now. He's been right now. Yeah, I mean, he did a lot for Marvel as well, weirdly, but uh, this is a Elseworlds. It takes place in the 70s. It's I'm not in DC's universe. I never at all followed their sort of martial arts universe. Like I was much more into Shang-Chi from, from Marvel and that whole world here, their version, their Bruce Lee analog was Richard dragon. And that is the, 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 the character here created by Dennis O'Neill and James R. Barry, uh, voiced here by Mark DeCascos, you know, actual real martial artist. And it's story of, well, I mean, in the seventies, the idea, like, how these people are training in the secret monastery in the Himalayas with O Sensei, who is like the, in, in DC, the master of masters of martial arts, any martial arts type shit. It also introduces in here a very Elseworlds version of several characters like Lady Shiva, Jade, uh, Rip Jagger, and uh, Bronze, Bronze Tiger. Tiger. None of them even faintly resemble their characters in the comic books, except maybe Lady Shiva, but even then only the tiniest bit. And Batman, who's in here and could literally be anyone. <laughs> and and now, now that sounds like a complaint, but that might be my favorite part of this movie. Like, yeah, I agree. I, so I, this movie is straight up my alley. I dig weird 70s martial arts movies. Uh, and the movie itself, even though it has Batman in the title, like Chris said, he's in maybe five minutes. No, he's not in five minutes. He's only in the costume no. for like five to ten minutes of the movie. It's really yeah. Bruce Wayne. And really the main character is Richard Dragon. And so while, yes, it does have a parallel story to the, to Batman training into martial arts and learning how he became a badass, really it's about Dragon and Bruce Wayne investigating uh, a some theft of some of these priceless items from their past that are used to unlock a door to a parallel dimension with uh, snake gods. And yeah. the vast majority of this movie is a enter the dragon ask Bruce Lee movie. Like he wears the same fucking costume and everything with Bruce Wayne as the sidekick. And yeah. that's exactly kind of what I want out of my Batman now. Like, I like that it's a weird genre and it sticks to it. And I like that Batman is a presence, but he's not just some almighty God character who comes in and does everything. Yeah, he does not save the day yeah, like, at like, all. Uh, like, ever. The, the, <laughs> like, for the most part, uh, I'm a little tired of the animation style, but otherwise it looks yeah. good. Um, That's one of my big com complaints here is that the animation style here is just so plain. Well, they really look like rushed as shit. I mean, it's not choppy or anything, but it has like a television animation look to it where all the faces are entirely undetailed. It's just like, oh, this looks not great. My second big complaint is, although it starts strong with the 70s, wakata, 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 it's outside of the soundtrack, which is great. It kind of just forgets about that at one point. Goes like, okay, I was like, you know, for an animated film like this, I would have liked to see nonstop '70s shit coming into it. I would have enjoyed it more if they had done that. At one point, outside of sideburns and bell bottoms, you could have not realized it was in the '70s by the, by like 20 minutes into it. And and thirdly, like. In retrospect, I'm like, I would watch more of these if Batman is literally a sideline supportive character who's just there sort of witnessing other badasses. But at the time watching it, I was just annoyed he was there at all. I'm like, you have no purpose in this story. So <laughs> my complaints, I agree with the animation style. Um, all of the DC animated movies now have this style as their de facto look. And... It, it makes them feel all samey, especially with the period nature of this. This should have been told in a more stylized nature. Um, I also, I, I have some quibbles with the bat suit itself. Uh, that, that's a me thing. You were making fun of uh, me. That's one we disagreed yeah, on. Uh, like, like, this is the law. This is the 
tall, long, curved ears, spandex, Bob Kane-esque original Batman design look. But they've never and, animated him this and, way and, before, which is why I liked it. He, he looked this way in New Frontier. Um, but uh, I Okay, fair, fair. I'm not a big fan of this design. And also, I'm just going to say it, I hate the very ending of this movie. Like, it, it, it's a ha-ha-ha <laughs> kind of gimme, but... It, I don't think it works as the end of a story. It would have been fine okay. if they had a follow-up. But as it was, I, I was like, oh, come on. I agree with, you, agree with you, but I think they were directly nodding to the end of the original Mortal Kombat film okay. here. Where they go, ha! And, and like credits, you know, say the big boss they have yet to face or the ending of Angel. Ah, but I get to fight the dragon. I was like, it was one of those type endings. I was like, okay, I get what you're getting at. It didn't really fit in this piece, but like it made me laugh that that was clearly what you were going for here was the, you know, I would say more certainly the Mortal Kombat reference. Um, But overall, I mean, this is fine. I want to see more stuff like this, you know, certainly. But I wish they would put a little more work into the detail. I'm glad that they're starting to shift towards more Elseworlds stuff. Uh, This is not as good as Man of Steel. Like, I loved Mm -mm. Man of Steel. That one hit it out of the park. But if you enjoy martial arts movies or those 70s crime films and you enjoy Batman, it's worth a watch. Just again, just to emphasize Batman is not the main character in this. <laughs> well, and one of the things I did really like about this is clearly the fights are different because they have to be. This is not just, you know, Batman style fighting. This is actual supposed to represent martial arts of different styles because these guys, even though they're all training under the same master, so it makes no sense. They have different styles, whatever, but they all have different styles and they Reflect that, and it wasn't apparently incredibly difficult and and difficult. Apparently, like you watch the bonus features here, director Sam Liu was like, when he was approached, said we're going to do this. He was like, oh fuck, you don't even know what you're asking. Like, like we're basically going to have to take everything we've done before, all the stuff we've developed with like the fighting style of this, and scrap it and try and create something that actually reflects what martial arts would really look like, or people are going to scream at us. And I think overall they did a pretty good job of representing that. Like I said, they go into, it was a lot of work making that come out and you can tell watching it like, Oh, they actually tried to do something different with the fights and make it feel like real martial arts. And they animate it differently. They do some interesting things with motion blur. I, 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 I made it past like the first fight and then I really started paying attention to the way they handle the movement. Uh, whenever they did super martial arts speed, uh, it's cool. It's worth watching for that part. So for bonus features, there's Batman Raw Groove for 30 minutes, which is a look at the 70s, basically. Like, look at all the movies that we were into. Wakata, 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 like all that stuff. And it's it's entertaining enough. On some point, you're like, why didn't you include more of that stuff that you were influenced by? But okay. There's producer Jim Krieg's Far Out Highlights for 18 minutes, which is pretty much the same thing from producer man Jim Krieg, who I'm just now starting to realize is uh, somebody who will appear on anything from the DC Universe films as long as he gets to wear a costume and play a wacky character. (laughs) (laughs) And then a sneak peek from Justice Society World War II, which is going to be the next one, which again, Jim Krieg appears to play a wacky character. And then stuff we've seen before, trailers uh, from Superman Red Sun, Batman Gotham by Gaslight, and then stuff from the DC Vault, two vintage episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and then trailers for a lot of their stuff. I mean, this is fine. I, I'm glad it came out. I wish it had been better yeah. than it is, but I still enjoyed it. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if they had like uh, an Afro Samurai-esque animation style in this movie or something like really yes. weirder out there? Did the fact that they went to, I, I am blanking on the name of the animator now, for uh, the Batman Ninja or whatever it was. You remember that one? Uh, I do, but I don't know where you're yeah. going. Black out of the top. But, you know, it was yeah. an entirely different style of animation that was super detailed and, and like, oh, this fits. And that they didn't go to somebody, you know, <laughs> like the Afro Samurai guy or Jendi Tartakovsky would have been a good choice, right? Maybe he did Afro Samurai. I don't even know. But uh, I'm like, I'm not as great with the animation as I'd like you all to believe. But like, this just looks like another one of the ba- of the animated universe films. And I'm like, this, this is a thing that really kind of, really would have used would have been helped immensely by having its own distinctive style for sure. I agree completely. Uh, well, let's move into our last film, which I think is a considerably better kind of must see animated film. And that's Lupin the third, the first, which is a little bit of a 
confusing title, admittedly. Now, Lupin, so we're clear. Right now, Lupin is having a moment. Lupin was originally Arsène Lupin, who was a French detective who literally battled Sherlock Holmes multiple times in the huge amount of novels and novellas and short stories that were published in France around the turn of the century. Last century, not this last turn of the century. It was a huge, huge deal. He was like a master thief who couldn't be beat. He was super intelligent, but also charming and always did the right thing and fought for good. And the Japanese saw this and went, we love this. We're going to make a character who's his grandson, only he's grown up in Japan. And he became Lupin III, of which Castle Cogliostro became one of Miyazaki's big, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's big shots across the bow as an animator in Studio Ghibli. Like, whoa, what was that in the 80s? And went on to, I mean, there's an enormous amount of like Japanese Lupin stuff. There's an enormous amount of French Lupin stuff, but we saw here in America more of the Japanese stuff. So there's a show on Netflix right now called Lupin, which is about a guy who's very Lupin-like, but he's just influenced by Lupin, played by the great Omar Sa. They also have the Japanese Lupin the Third TV show on Amazon. Yeah, there's a lot of the Japanese stuff. So this is the Japanese character, Lupin the Third, right? And it's going with a sort of, you know, I guess it's a reboot, right? With it calling the first, I kind of assumed this was the first, like, this was the prequel. This is the origin story of sorts, because I haven't seen anything from this character. Like, I know that there was the Miyazaki movie, The Castle of of Cogliostro. Which you have to watch. You have to watch. I know, I know, I want to. Well, I have to now, which I'll get to. Um, But, um, so, like, I've never actually seen this. This was my first experience, and... I thought the character was really interesting, uh, although I admit I, I can't stand some of the choices they made for the dubbing in this, um, hmm. which I ended up having to watch this with my son because he saw it once without me when it was just sitting in the stack. I don't know that I would have let my four and a half year old watch this, uh, knowing that there's like people getting executed in it all over the place and Nazis and Hitler. Um, but my son adores this with a passion. Um, it has a really beautiful animation style. If you're a geek for that, you're going to love it, but it also is so fast paced and so quickly, um, shot and it just comes at you so much that it it was almost too much for me. Like I found myself having to be like, all right, I need to like walk away from a moment and get a drink of water because I'm I'm overwhelmed (laughs) with how much is happening and how quick. It's also 3D CG, which is the first Lupin film that's been made that way. Uh, the plot is, takes place during World War II in France, where there's this book called The Bresson Diary, which has this, you know, clockwork super trap lock that's explosive that the Nazis are trying to get after that's supposed to lead to this huge treasure, question mark. The uh, and, yeah, and then Lupin, like... This is like 10 years that we see that initial thing. And 10 years after Hitler dies, now the diary is being shown at a memorial at a big museum. Lupin tries to steal it because his grandfather had a connection to it. And meanwhile, a bunch of other stuff comes up that sort of all leads into the sort of origin story for this character, leads into the other side characters that end up becoming a part, an inextricable part of the Lupin story. If you watch any other of the Japanese Lupin stuff, these characters and their adventures in a very, you know, more than anything, Indiana Jones. Yeah, it, it feels like Indiana Jones by way of the saint. Yeah. 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 I would agree with that. Totally. Um, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's beautiful looking. It's fast moving. Uh, I watched this initially on a screener, which I had no choice to put in the Japanese version. It was dubbed only. I didn't have a really a problem with it overall. Overall, I don't have a problem with dubbed animated films. Oh. That doesn't bother me as much as long as they get good people to do it. You know what I mean? Um, as long as it's not because we get an awful lot sometimes of like, dubbed stuff where it's people were like and then i did the thing ha ha and i didn't think this was badly i will admit that my issue with the dub is less with the quality of the dub and more that the voice actor who does a good job i'm not like bashing the actual actor but the voice that they ended up using the tone and pitch for lupon just like was nails on a chalkboard for me and so, like, every time the main character was speaking, I had the little twitch in my eye going, like, 
okay. But like, as far as Indiana Jones esque stories, like it's good to be able to introduce my kid to this kind of thing. And while yes, my son is too young to have watched a movie about Nazis killing people and trying like like watching an Indiana Jones story with thieves, it's still something that if your kid is young enough uh, to. Actually, let me, let me back that up. If your kid is old enough to be able to handle watching something that does have some death and peril in it, like this is a great yeah. way to introduce your kid to action adventure stories. It's, I mean, it's no more death and peril than Raiders of the Lost Ark is, though. I would say you know? Raiders of the Lost Ark is more death and peril than this. There's yeah, more, maybe yeah. more than this. I mean, people die during this, but like it's in passing. Yeah. Like, like, you know, <laughs> if if you this is basically if you want to show your kids uh, Indiana Jones, but they're not old enough yet. Like this is something sure. that you could really show them, and I would recommend that definitely. And the fans of the original, there's a lot of like, oh, we're pulling out these references to the original, like the famous yellow car from Miyazaki's version of Lupin is has a, the best sequence in this entire film uh, in a car chase sequence. Where you're like, that was amazing. <laughs> like all of his best friends have like their unique and super specific abilities. They're the best in the world at, and that's all. Everybody gets to do their thing in that sequence. That was the sequence that finally sold me on the movie because until then. It was all coming at me too fast, and that happened. And I was like, "Okay, I now understand the tone of this movie." Because, like, yeah, the one guy jumps up and like cuts a car into little pieces, and one guy unscrews a sign with bullets. It's just like, yeah. all right, cool. This isn't the real world, and it doesn't need to be. And that's a wonderful thing. No. So, there's actually a lot of reason to get the Blu-ray of this. There's an hour and forty-seven minutes of bonus features that includes the original voice cast. From that, that uh, the English voice cast has an audio reunion that come in here to talk during the commentary, which is fun from the from the original, uh, you know, uh, dubs of the the tele- of the movies. Uh, there's a quick segment from the Japanese Yellow Carpet premiere, about a minute and nineteen seconds. There's interviews of the director and Japanese characters. Uh, Japanese cast are about thirty minutes. Uh, there's a CG model gallery and just a lot more. This is a really solid set of release for a uh, set of extras for release that normally this type of release doesn't get a lot of bonus features. And I was yeah. like, wow, impressive job putting together this film for collectors. And I think both people who already love Lupin are really, really going to like this outside of those people who are like, but wait, that's not the way it happened. Whatever. Well, and, uh, and, and people who, this is like, if anything, I would say this is the introduction film. Well, uh, people are like, Oh, you need to find out about this character. This is the one. Just, just to double down on, if you have kids who are old enough to explore adventure movies, check this out. Uh, I have seen this four times so far since Chris gave it to me two weeks ago. Wow. Four times my son has made me watch this, and he has adored it every time. Well, that begs the question, now that we're at the end of the show, what is our pick of the week, Aaron? Because I have several that I'd go, question mark? Mm. You know, um, honestly, if we're talking about just quality of a film, I would have leaned towards Beast Clawing at Straws, but that's just such Mm -hmm. a bare-bones disc. Um, it, It has to be Love and Monsters for me. Like that that was okay. a really quality set with good bonus features. The 4K was great and the movie was a joy to watch. Yeah, there's a lot of good things to pick from this week, no question. I probably would have leaned more towards Lupin myself, but I'm willing to go with Love and Monsters because that was also like, wow, I'll watch this multiple yeah. times. I'm really glad I own it. Yeah. But that is it for the the two for Aaron with Chris Digital Noise. <laughs> and I'll be back soon with John who's working on his stack for more stuff. Aaron, anything you want to talk to people about uh, where you they want to find you online? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at, at Father Baldor. Uh, you can also uh, listen to me on the Mission Impotable podcast. We're on Spreaker and Spotify and all those places with which you listen to podcasts. Fair enough. And we'll be back soon with more digital noise. Thanks for listening. Click on the links on the actual One of Us page because we get a little kickback. And that's always yeah. nice.